Welcome to the Unified Brand Podcast, brought to you by Elements Brand Management, a weekly brand building and brand strategy podcast to help you unlock your brand's potential, stand out from the competition, and create impact. So today we're joined by Ari Navarro, Chief Growth Officer at VSA Partners. She helps brands like AT&T, Nike, and IBM to unlock growth potential by connecting business strategy to brand and experience strategy. Great to have you on the Unified Brand Podcast. Ari, it'd be good to learn a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Yeah. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I am the, as you said, Chris, the Chief Growth and Strategy Officer. So my job is to understand the world at large, understand the big challenges that businesses are facing, and then really helping sort of connect what we do and our capabilities to help solve those challenges that the companies are facing. So I have to sort of look ahead, but also be very very present into who we are and what we do best and then kind of bring those things together. Sounds good. So, I mean, what is your love of uh, branding and business start? Where did it come from? I could talk about this for a very long time. So I'm from Venezuela and I went to college there and I had a friend who had a boyfriend who worked in production and she introduced a bunch of us to that production company. We ended up, you know, becoming kind of production assistants all through college. So I did like 45 TV spots through, you know, college in Venezuela's five years. And then toward the end of college, we were shooting a Crest, you know, Crest toothpaste commercial. And the agency is Leah Burnett. And they're like, oh, are you graduating soon? And I'm like, well, yes, I am. Glad you asked. So I got a job at Leah Burnett. And that's how I started. And then I started in account management and then very quickly moved into planning, strategic planning, which is kind of like this sort of newish thing 20 something years ago. That was really all about finding the insight and finding the truth and connecting to that sort of gold that no one else had found. So I was kind of trained to look deep into sort of the human nature and human ambition and desires from literally my first job. Wow, cool. So when you say look deep into sort of human nature and that sort of thing, how has that helped you with regards to brand experience and developing that? Has that sort of been something that's been an ever-present that you draw on today? Yeah, you have to listen, you have to observe, and you have to connect dots in new ways. And that, I think, has served me forever, but it's something I genuinely learned when I was at Pina and I had you know this extraordinary boss at Leo and she would send me to, she would say like, okay, go to college fair and just sit and listen to how, you know, the 17, 18 year olds are talking. And by the way, I was 23. So it's not like I was that much older, but she's like, go and sit at a bench and just listen and write down how are they speaking? And then tell me a story of what were you observing? Because it wasn't just like, hey, they said, I like Coca-Cola, you know, like it was just like, and then we would pull out insights from that conversation. And that was just to train me. There wasn't like a project. I was just like how she wanted me to think. So that sort of started there. And then she sort of really pushed all of us, not just me, but the the creative teams to think sort of, you know, what we call lateral thinking. So don't think sort of the obvious, like if this is the insight, this is the obvious idea. But like, you know, if you were a lizard, how would you get to that? Kind of like getting at the problem from different angles. So I will be forever grateful because I think I have a very creative approach to like really hard business problems. That sounds amazing. Like a really good way to learn, like you said, the kind of thing with developing insights, but problem solving, that creative thinking. Because a lot of times when we create things for marketing and brand, we try and think about what the outcome is going to be in terms of you have that logical 
conclusion to an insight, like you said. But actually, a lot of times, the audience is representing it differently to you and they think about it in a different way and they talk about it in a different way. So that must have been amazing to get that sort of early on, that insight into the audience's mind and how they think differently to how we do on the other side of the fence. Yeah, which is why I don't love focus groups. I'm sorry to the world. (laughs) I'm saying that publicly now because it's all post-rationalization. And unless you run it in a very creative way, and again, you do some of this sort of lateral projective exercises so that people really, really think through and, you know, are not pressured by the group thing, it's really difficult to get to these big aha moments in these sort of really controlled environments. But it's also, you know, you can't always go and sit at a bench and listen for 10 hours. So I think that's our job as strategists. Same for business, not just human insight, but like, you know, how do you listen to a client and how do you really dig deep to understand what is the true challenge of an organization and how can you help them in return solve it in a way that's going to be meaningful? Yeah, definitely. So how do you approach those moments where you've got that insight and you kind of understand the audience a bit better? What do you do then? How do you approach that when it comes to sort of the engagement, the experience and the business side of things? Yeah, I love that question because I think a lot of brands And I get it, right? I mean, you're driven by profit. So you're looking at that experience through the lens of optimizing your touch points or touch point optimization. How do I make this moment better? And that usually means how do I get you to a sale quicker? And that's B2B as well, right? How do I get you to pick up the phone? Or how do I get you to close the sale? Or, you know, at least put me in your consideration set, all that stuff. But the thing that we put in between that equation is brand. And by that, I mean... It's not just about the human motivation. And again, human can be, a bit, you know, what does a business need if you're selling a business service? What is the human motivation? And then, yes, of course, what do you want at the other end? But what does the brand stand for? And is that moment really helping to evolve that idea that you're selling as your brand? Because if it's not, it might still get a sale, but it's not driving that long-term growth. And it's not actually an investment in the brand then. It's just a very good sales strategy. So what I think sometimes happens, especially in this year we're in, which is sort of this weird, are we in a recession or not? Everyone says we're not, but then everyone's acting like they are. And everyone's sort of pushing their dollars into product marketing, lead gen, you know, bottom of the funnel. And again, absolutely, you probably have to do that. But then you have to really consider like, what is it doing long term? Is it hurting, you know, what you've tried to build? And if it is, then you have to really rethink how you do that sort of that push to make sure that it's driving that. And that's hard because it requires a lot of discipline and you have to make a lot of choices. And sometimes maybe you're not getting the best return on investment on a specific channel, but you still have to do it because it's an ingredient to that longer term growth. Definitely. So what's something that you see a lot of businesses getting wrong when it comes to their sort of their product marketing and that sort of thing? What's something that they struggle with the most? I want to say this without offending people, but I do think sometimes clients and brands think that that lower funnel is, you know, hit me really hard with your best offer. And that by offer, it could be your best features, you know, it could be claims, it could be obviously, you know, discounts. I mean, that's how it works. Like at the top of the funnel, it's brand building. In the middle, you start to introduce obviously the product benefits or the service benefits, you know, to make sure that you're, I get it, right? Like that you're, that you're building that rationale for why me. And then that bottle of the final is meant to close the sale. And absolutely it is. But you're not necessarily going to close the sale by saying I'm 20% faster because no one knows what that means. 
you know, do you not, do you sit there with your phone and go like, let me see if you're 20. Oh, I'm going to go for the one that's 22%. That one definitely, like that 2% really did it for me. So I think we have sometimes categories that speak in features and claims. And I don't know that that's how human beings understand information. I mean, it's been proven and said over and over again that we as humans understand information and stories. And that's why, you know, some people that tell data stories in a compelling way, you're like, holy crap, you know, like that's extraordinary because it makes you understand something really complicated, but it's because they're telling you a story. So that's kind of like the thing we really try to think about. And we do a lot of that sort of product marketing, lead gen, you know, like, again, like really driving sales, but through that human lens. So if you think of, in the words of our purpose, how do you create a better human experience? That's how we think of that sort of lower funnel communications. Like, what is a better human experience for you as a person on the other end? If it's B2B, who, you know, you're putting your job on the line, if you're going to decide to go with this vendor or that vendor or this partner or that partner, what does that look like for you? And what is the emotional and the functional requirements as well? And when do you introduce what? So it's more thinking because it's more about the system versus one-off. We really have to think of this as a group of pieces that get you to that point. And then if you design it as a system or as an ecosystem, then in a way, like it takes a pressure off because you can say like, okay, this is what this piece has to do. And that's okay. This one just has to gently ease you to the next conversation. You don't have to go hard. This one's where you go 20 times bigger than X because, you know, connected to the Y. And then the third, you know, so that's when you think of it just from that behavior change model, it changes how you do it and it becomes much more effective. That's cool. So it's almost every single touch point or every piece of the puzzle has to fit in, has to be in a relationship with the other parts of that puzzle, has to sort of all fit together. When you were talking about the feature side of things, it reminded me of something I heard the other day, which was every thought we have is kind of, you have it twice. You have it once in the subconscious before you've even actually consciously brought that to the forefront. So the subconscious generally drives everything you do from the emotional perspective. The people that are driving that feature kind of led approach, Yeah, they're speaking to the logical before they spoke to the emotional. So I think, yeah, if you can do that emotional first and then drive them into that. And it got me thinking when you were talking then. So with regards to that, how can somebody bring those pieces together? What's the sort of framework that you use or how do you make sure that you have those touch points so that the engagement for the end user is seamless? What are some of the things you look at with that? Yeah, I mean, we have this research we do that honestly, it's taken years to get it right because we had this ambition of like, how do we prove that these things are connected? And how do we prove that like certain things have to do different things in that brand or service experience? And then how do we, can we assign it a value? And it's hard because attribution and correlation and all of that is hard. But the thing that we look at is what are the needs? Of course, you start there, you know, what are the needs? And we look at that from emotional, functional, higher order to really identify white space. And that's obvious everyone sort of, in a way, does that. We have a way of doing it, but everyone does that. Then we look at the promises you can make, because again, like how many times have we talked to clients or have, we all live it, you know, you see things out there and you're like, you're talking to yourself. Just because you're great at this doesn't mean it's something I need or want. And that connection of like, I need what I have is sort of that first step on like, it's sometimes they're hard conversations telling clients like, this is great but no one wants to hear it. Or, you know, people are coming in, like, you know, achieve higher order benefits and you're coming in at super functional. So there's a gap, you're not gonna connect. So if you can do that diagnosis first, then you can understand, we call sort of the chords that you're gonna play. 
and it's white space sort of understanding, but it really helps to have a database conversation with clients so that it's not just your opinion. And then we look at, so, so from the prompt, from the needs to the promises, to the experiences. Then you look at just which are the best experiences they're going to do this. You know, so if you, if you landed on this promise, which is your positioning, then you think about, you know, channel and, and message and experiences because the experience can be the message as well. So let's say if you're a brand that's about, I'm making this up, but like if you're a brand that's sort of anchored in simplicity, I don't know, then you really have to consider what are the simplest experiences and how many touch points conveys simplicity. And well, it can't be a hundred, you know, and it can't be a hundred features. So then that comes back to how you talk about it. So how many experiences, you know, how many times do you need to talk to them to get to a sale or an engagement? So you start to really connect those dots between what they need, what you promise, and what are the right experiences to really sort of move that brand promise forward, not just return on investment on that touch point. So it raises the table stakes, you know, from like omnichannel friction less, you know, sort of table stakes, what experiences should look like today to be more intentional. Like, what do you have to deliver? And now let's think about it. When you were explaining there, you mentioned about building a more human experience and how does automation fit into that? And do you see an over-reliance on processing and automation sort of in at the moment? Yeah, I mean, we were having this conversation the other day with our media folks, and I can't remember, I should have had the stat at the top of my head, but I was saying like, is there a better way to do media? Because media lives in this, you know, back to automation, kind of the, everything can be A-B tested all the time. And you optimize in real time and you can change a message 800 times in a day because it's, auto, you know, sort of automating, it's like, Okay, people are clicking on this. Okay, cut this word, change this word, try blue, now try green, try like, but that's coming at whose expense? The person on the other side. So you're the one receiving the noise. And that's horrifying. And he was actually, he gave me a stat, which of course now I have to look, but it's something crazy. It's like 70% of A-B testing fails or something. Like it's just a lot of wasted time and money. And again, the person that suffers is, is you. So... We literally sat down and said, okay, is there a better way to do media? Like, how do we minimize the risk? So yes, of course, A-B testing. Yes, of course, technology is there to help us and create algorithms and scale the thinking. But how do we minimize that? So when you get there, it's doing it with less damage, I guess, if you will. And we sort of landed on this, well, we're embedding media and channel thinking with the creative teams and the strategy teams day one, which usually that comes later in the process to really think about channel, to really think about effectiveness of like, there's certain messages as we all know that work on TikTok that don't work on Insta or that don't work on Twitter or that don't work on, you know, so if you're thinking of that from the beginning, you don't have to A-B test at the end, you know, like there's certain tone. Again, these are basic things that everyone sort of knows, but it's like when you are in really complex, either campaign work, comms challenges, it really helps to have that conversation early. So that media person, by the time we get to a go-to-market approach, he's understood the strategy. So he knows, like back to the example we're using, if the brand is simplicity, he knows he has to think of a media strategy that really conveys that. So we're trying, you know, we continue to try to improve on that. We feel this burden in a good way and this responsibility to create meaning and to not put more noise out into the world, but just... I mean, we're still selling things, of course, but, you know, that's the role of brand, but in a way that's meaningful. 
Yeah, definitely. I like that idea of obviously having the, the strategic part first, obviously gives the media in that perspective more focus, more guidance, more kind of acuity before you start doing any of the testings. You're in the wheelhouse, you know where you are, you know what you're trying to achieve. You know what, like you said, the proposition you're trying to get across. I like that idea. And I think because if you're just putting stuff out there, like you said, it's the end person, but it's also the brand as well that's suffering in that point in time with the, like you said, simplicity and you've got an over complex kind of advertising message that's coming through. It's only going to disassociate simplicity with that target audience. So yeah, I, I can see how difficult that could be to manage. So how does that then shift into sort of the, the world of AI and how AI can, can help with the experience side of things? Yeah, we just did a, an AI roundtable. I mean, we just kind of honestly walked away saying, well, everyone has to experiment. That's the phase we're in. And I know everyone wants really these solid, concrete answers, but we're in the experimentation phase for all the obvious reasons. You know, most people have chat three and not four, you know, like, so that goes back two years. Everyone's learning. Some people are frightened by it. You know, so all the obvious reasons of, of such, a, you know, of something like this, which is going to disrupt everything as we know it, especially us, you know, the knowledge society, the people that don't make things with their hands. Um, although eventually maybe robots will do that too. So we'll see where we land, but we are the first ones to be disrupted. And the thing right now that is of value with AI is understanding how to write prompts. And that's kind of like what we're getting good at. And then we're creating some you know, smaller products, but it's much more interesting for us to understand how to use it in a way that actually helps the work versus sort of fear what it does. And we're literally using probably everything with people that are using chat to write prompts from a journey that then gives them something for Dali. And then, well, you try something in Bard and then you come back to this. Like, so we're, we're playing with everything that's out there. But there is sort of this big question of what can we use it for things where good enough is good enough? And what that means is... Uh, there are, you know, people using it for content, obviously, as you know, it's probably like the, one of the biggest things. It's like just content, churning content out, social media content, blogs, you know, all that stuff. And we are very particular at VSA. We are tortured writers and tortured artists and tortured strategists. And like, I mean, we will lie on the rails before everything, before we put something out there that we don't, you know, don't feel proud of. But there are certain things that good enough is good enough. And that's going to be a learning for us and also for clients to say like, okay, can you use AI for something where good enough is fine? And I'll give you an example. Someone in the strategy team was telling the story of a friend of hers who's a lawyer. And the law firm had a copywriter on staff full time because they have a newsletter and a blog that are the main sources for legion. That's how they get clients, which fine, makes sense for a pretty simple strategy. And this copywriter turns out, you know, this newsletter, I don't know, let's say it was once a week. And they started trying AI and seeing, well, can AI write some of these topics and push this out? And they realized, oh, but wait, we're getting the exact same results. Literally, whatever, I don't know, let's say they got three leads, they're getting three leads. If they got two calls, they got two calls. So same result. So they fired the poor copywriter. So that's the thing where it's like, okay, well, for that, good enough is good enough. Now, then you can ask the question that you were asking, Chris, which is, well, that was when we heard the brand, you know, if that content isn't thoughtful or it's not empathetic or at some point, does it run out of good ideas? I don't know. I mean, that's the learning that I think we're all going through. 
Yeah, it's interesting how many different tools there are. I've seen recently for different things. Like you said, you can easily pop between one to the next to the next. And I've just seen the, the latest Photoshop beta's come out with um, an AI built into it, which is really interesting how that works. I quite like the way Adobe use things because they sort of almost, it's to augment the creative as opposed to replace it. If that makes sense, it's kind of to help the, cre yeah. the creative work. So um, yeah, just touch on something you said earlier on, which was talking about the sort of current situation we're in. It's, why is a powerful brand crucial in sort of tough economic times? I love stories, as maybe you can tell by now. So years ago, I worked on Kellogg. My background's actually in innovation, so I'm usually kind of disrupt businesses. Anyway, long story short, when I worked on Kellogg's, I'd heard the story that during the Great Depression, there were two cereal companies. One was Kellogg's and the other one was, oh my God, now I'm spacing. It'll come to and of course, Great Depression, everyone fires everyone and that's, they have to do that. Everyone's kind of going bankrupt. And Kellogg's apparently didn't. And Kellogg's at the time had, I don't know, 10% of the market and the other company had 80 or 90%. And Kellogg's held on to their people. And of course, you know, 100 years later, that other company is 20% of the market and Kellogg's is 80. And I don't know if it's necessarily the power of brand, but brand starts from within. And it starts internally. And if you don't have an, a strong internal culture and an understanding of who you are and where you're going, it's difficult to just have that outside. You know, the companies we always tote as these amazing beacons of, you know, examples of great brand building are the same inside and outside. You know, the Apples, the Nikes, like they have this ethos and this philosophy that just gets conveyed externally. So, in a time of crisis like this, I guess kind of why I was telling the Kellogg story. People are going to think about their choices more and you're going to think about the risks of any choice. Now, if you're just buying a cereal, well, the risk is whatever, $3, $5. But if you're buying hybrid cloud services from IBM and it's a million dollars, then you know that's a very different risk. So B2B, in particular in B2B, the power of brand is actually stronger than in B2C, contrary to popular belief. Because the most important thing in B2B is trust. You're going to make that choice because the risk is higher. And you're going to make that choice first in the brand you trust. Now, trust, of course, is trust. Isn't, you're going to trust you deliver. You're going to trust you're better. You're going to trust in your price. You know, you can play with trust in a hundred million ways. But that comes from how do you gain trust? If you haven't built relationship, personal relationships, a lot of that is the power of brand. So when you look at these mammoths of the, you know, like the AT&T and the Googles or you know, I mean, sorry, the IBMs and the Googles, for example, or the Amazons, there's so many times when you hear companies going like, oh, we don't get the credit we deserve. We're better than this one. It's like, well, look at the power of their brand. You know, Google built a lot of their cloud business from the power that comes. Now they had a consumer brand. So I, it's understandable. But AWS, you know, built because Amazon had this power of the brand. So, and I'm oversimplifying it. I'm not saying that's because the only, you know, that's the only reason. But it helps to sort of have that first step if you automatically believe that company can do it and trust that they can do it. Then, yes, the conversation can be about pricing and, you know, you can compare side by side who has what features and what capabilities and what speed, you know, whatever it is that you're buying. So brand is a set of beliefs. You know, people think brand is the fluff, the advertising. Brand is just the encapsulation, the best possible, most compelling encapsulation of your business strategy. And that's what a brand is, simple as that. So if that's strong, then in a time of either crisis or recession or slowdown, 
that has absolutely will pay off if you've invested in that before that happens. I like that, the way you've described that in terms of a brand and how you describe what it was. I think that's a really good way of describing it and takes away that kind of, like you said, that a lot of times it's that fluff and the, yeah, people think of the end product as opposed to the internal core part of it and what it means. I think they see the external and think, always think that's what it is. But yeah, that's really interesting. And I was thinking as you were talking then, there was a, when I was traveling, I was in Australia for a period and I went, worked at a marketing firm and they gave us these scripts to talk to people about in terms of clients we were talking to. And actually one of the things they did some research during the sort of, I think it was the end of the eighties, early nineties, there's a lot of companies that suffered with a sort of a downturn economically. And the ones that continued marketing through that period were the ones that survived that period. And the ones that didn't were the ones that ended up not surviving that period. So it was a really interesting thing to see that even through times where it is tougher, if you can continue to put yourself out there to market yourself, to promote your brand, like you said, it has its benefits. Because it's like everything. It's like, you know, we all say like, oh, the friends that show up in hard times, those are the ones you remember. It's just life. You have your remembering self, you remember beginning and endings, and you remember peaks and valleys. So if someone's with you in that valley, you're going to remember. And then yes, if someone's with you in the peak, you're going to remember. So those are choices that you have to make as a brand and say, okay, do I double down now? Because every crisis ends and every recession ends. So can't, and you have to do the math, obviously, like you have to look at your finances, like you can't double down if you can't double down. But if you double down and you're going to show up in a meaningful way, when you come out of this, the other brand's going to be not forgotten, but like they weren't there when you needed them. Yeah, definitely. So how do businesses sort of create that engaging brand experience to set them apart from the competition to sort of highlight the internal that we talked about? So, I mean, you mean sort of how to bring the internal out? Yeah, and create that sort of engaging brand experience. So like you said, with the simplicity example, how would you turn that into an experience and how can you make that stand out from the competition in a sort of differentiated way? You kind of have to stress test the moments you think that matter and then you have to have a point of view on the moments you think that matter too. So silly example, which I made up, so I don't think this is necessarily true, but when Virgin Airlines launched Virgin Airlines, you know, the Richard Branson's whole thing was like, we're going to go against the big guys. Like that's before I think he was very rich. That, that was the whole motto behind Virgin. You know, we're like, we're going to defy the status quo. And that means we're going to go against the big guys. You know, we're the little engine that can. And for them, that airline was all about experiential. It was all about like, when you're in here, you feel transformed. So. I think for them, they probably had to make choices. Hey, rather than like, we're not investing in the check-in process, which is part of the experience, let's say, but that maybe doesn't help us make the point of we're going against the big guy or we're different from the big guys. You know, they didn't invest at the time in, I don't know, maybe they didn't have as many roots. They certainly weren't winning on price because they were more expensive. What did they do? They were the first ones to bring like mood lighting into the planes. They were the first ones to bring you warm nuts, which I don't think anyone was doing. They were the first ones who had these lounges that didn't charge you for everything. I mean, of course, that's like if you're flying, you know, business or whatever, but like still, like they were making all these changes to the experience that were not across the entire experience because you, you can't afford it. You can't fix everything in your experience. So what we tell clients is like, look at everything. Some of these moments are table stakes. Like, yeah, your check-in can't be a cluster. You know, like you have to check people in and they can't, you know, there's got to be some order and like, and hey, maybe that's not what that, that's not the branded moment. You know, we call them MOIs or moments of impact. That doesn't have to be the moment of impact, but it has to be good enough. Back to the good enough, like that's table stakes. So table stakes, do them well, do them fine. 
and then pick what are the MOIs, what are the moments that are going to hit that promise? Like if they're going to hit you in your face and your gut and you're going to feel it. You know, for Apple, they honestly take the entire experience and all of it is surprise and delight from the freaking little paper that holds the cable, you know, to the box. So yeah, so it's just looking at that experience and picking the moments that you think are going to make your point. Again, it's like a relationship, you know, are you going to make your point by bringing flowers? Are you going to make your point by being funny? Are you going to make your point by showing up in a certain way, by texting, by calling, by not calling? You know, an omission is a, can be a choice as well. You know, what you don't do can be a choice. So you think of that and you think of like, you actually want to create intentional friction. And by that, you mean like you want to create something of an interest, of attention, of a moment, you know, whether you're solving it or not, or just creating it or, you know, or I don't know, you want to use scarcity to create desire. Like you want to create a little bit of attention of a moment. So anyway, you think of all those things to then get to whatever it is, the behavior you want to get to. That's really cool. So when you said moments of impact, that's really interesting. So how do you come up with those in your process? So kind of what's your process working with clients? How do you find those moments of impact? And when you said friction, could you elaborate a bit on that and how you almost do that tension, create that tension? Yeah. So the MOIs, we look at it like a, we look at it a stack. At the bottom of the stack is what we call brand ownables. That's like your, that's your basics, your logo, your you know a positioning that hopefully never or doesn't change for a while. Your colors, you know, like the things you own, the things that make you you, and that shouldn't change very often because it takes money, you know, to create the recognition. So you shouldn't really be changing that all the time. Then you have that middle stack, which we call brilliant basics, and that's your table stakes. So let's go back to the airline experience. Your table stakes, expectations. You no, know, as a flyer, you expect. When you buy a ticket that you get out of email or the confirmation that you expect an airplane that's clean, you expect the seats to be, you know, there's all you can break that down in all the elements of the experience. And you have to choose to, you know, what we say to clients is like, get to category requirements, meaning what do you expect? Hey, you expect the plane to fly, you expect it to be clean, you expect the seat to not, you know, give you whatever cramps and you expect people not to be rude, like the basics, but you may not necessarily invest in all of it because Again, most companies can't. So then you say, okay, now let's think of our MOIs. So if our positioning is around simplicity, what does that look like and where does that show up so that it conveys that at every experience that matters? So we think at the beginning and the end. So what were the bookends? Because again, from behavioral science, we know that, that the remembering self remembers that. And it's sort of this. Everyone always says like, you're on a flight, you have a great flight. And then there's bumpy air at the end. And when someone's like, how's your flight? You're like, oh man, so bumpy. And it's like, it was one second of an eight hour flight. And that's what you remember. That's how your brain works. So you think of your bookends and then you try to find what you think the peaks are going to be. And you look at, again, you do a current and a future state. So you look at where's the category, where would you like to be? And then you pick the moments. So if it's simplicity, Maybe you say, hey, it's a one-click check-in process. You don't have to communicate it, but that's what that check-in process is going to be. If it's, you know, I don't know, like if it's implicit, well, we have one thing on the menu. I mean, that's a bad idea, but you know what? Like, so you don't have to decide. We decide for, you know, like it's simple. So you pick these moments and then you make these the moments that sort of are your calling cards that tell your story. So what moments tell your story? That's really interesting. I, I like that. Um, it reminded me of... Um... Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. So he goes into the restaurant. The first thing he does with the simplicity analogy is he'll look at the menu and he'll strip off the menu to be like just down to the third of what it was. 
to make that simplicity to make the choice easier. But it's interesting, like you said there, with picking those moments of impact that really can define simplicity to get that across your audience. So you were saying about the one-click check-in. I think it's a really cool idea. You could have it with an app that's just really simple, like you said, a three-step sign-up or something like that that just kind of gets you onboarded really quickly in a simple way. Yeah, and if you take that through the whole thread of what we've been talking about, let's, for the sake of this discussion, let's say that the insight that you found, and it's really not an insight, but just a fact, I mean, flying is overwhelming these days for all the things we know. Security, this, that, competitive prices change, you know, like, do I get the seat or not? Like, it's stressful. Whether you have status on an airline or not, it's really stressful. So if that's the insight you found and you start to break that into like, cool, just because you have a fact doesn't mean that you can fulfill it as a brand. So you have to look at like, well, what do we do best? And what are we about? And what do we have to offer? And that's when you marry those two things of a human truth you can leverage for growth is when you hit gold you know that's what we call an insight it's not a fact it's not just a human truth it's well it has to be true and there has to be something you can do about it or otherwise like you know that doesn't matter so that tension in between you know could be like hey i want to fly more but i can't manage the stress of flying more and then it's like okay how do you play with that tension to really solve that in your experience in a way that ends up being positive wow yeah I can see that. So with that side of things, then when you're working with clients, do you have any sort of any top tips that, that listeners can listen, sort of take away right now and sort of use to review their brand experience or even just adjust it slightly to make it better to increase those moments of impact in the right way? Yeah, I would say two things. One is bring a multi-experience team together quickly from the beginning. And by that, I mean like bring your CFO and bring your product innovation team and bring your marketing. Even if you're five people, it doesn't matter. But if you think of these ideas holistically, then they're going to be easier to execute, to sell to all of it. Like you can, you can have a brilliant idea, but if it's not profitable, it dies very quickly. So don't waste time getting to that before you've talked to, you know, so have those integrated conversations from the beginning. And that's sort of the, it's called design thinking process. Like do it quickly, iterate, try new things. And that will help. And then the other thing is, just make choices. You know, I had this old boss who used to tell me there's a pool of right. You know, there's 50 things that can be right. Pick one and stick with it and have conviction to stick with it. So just pick one, pick one, pick two, pick three, and then do it. And it's fine. You know, don't get FOMO of all the other things you should have done. No one can do all of the things. No one can fix everything in an experience, especially not big companies, you know, big legacy organizations that were not digitally native. You know, even startups that are digitally native you know, have scaled and then they figuring other things out. You know, how do I keep that experience alive? And now I can't because now I'm servicing 50 million people instead of 10,000. And, you know, they're still dealing with other things. So you're always going to have to pick. And that's where MOI is that thinking really helps you focus because it takes the anxiety away. It's like, oh, well, the other stuff that doesn't work. Yeah, I know that feeling. I was literally talking about it yesterday. Yeah, with a colleague and just saying that yeah, there's so many things I want to get to in terms of innovation and ideas and things like this. And But like you said, there's things part of the journey, the customer journey and experience that we really want to get to and fix. And it's there's so many things it could be. So it's really good to hear that. Pick one, pick two, pick three. That's cool. It's really good. That's really good advice. Yeah, it can be overwhelming thinking there's so many things you could do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine a global brand. Imagine you're a global car company, you know, who's been in the market for, I don't know, 60 years, 50, whatever, 80 years. Imagine all the complexity of a business like that and all the things you have to, how do you fix the dealer experience? How do you fix pricing strategy? How do you fix customer service? How do you fix innovation? How, I mean, I don't think you could ever move if you want to fix everything. If you have this roadmap with conviction and a point of view, this is why brand is 
we're coming back full circle. If you define the brand very clearly and that's your strategic filter, then it's so easy to make those choices because it's not about coming up with a ton of new ideas or fixing a lot of things that need fixing. It's what are the things that are going to be these MOIs or what your brand stands for? Then it's like, oh, well, my God, it was always in front of me. I always explain it when I was talking to people about the idea of think outside the box. So I always say people about think outside the box, but you can't think outside the box if the box hasn't been created. And what you were saying there is kind of the idea of that the brand almost is that box, that brief that can then breed that innovation and kind of drive that innovation forward. Because you've got a, a sandbox to play in now. You know what, where you are, what the corners are, where the edges are, if that makes sense. I like that. Yeah. It's like think inside the box, but not because you're thinking small, but because you've created constraints, which you have to, because that's the definition. Yeah, I like that. That's interesting. I used to struggle with art when I was younger. Designer loved art struggled with because I always found with art I could do anything whereas design there was always a brief there was always a function to fulfill so you can design something when you have the brief but when you have art I used to find art tricky because of that particular thing unless I gave myself a brief so the brief for the creativity well because we have a brain and you're judging what you're doing or what you're seeing so if you don't know how to judge it it would only create for me it would create you know extraordinary anxiety because it's like, okay, cool, I like it, but what is it supposed to do? Mm. Tell me what it's supposed to do, and then I can judge it with a filter. Yeah, that's it. So that's the part where without a brand, the brand's a filter. I think it's simple as that. The brand's the glasses you're going to put on that are going to help you make those choices. I think when companies struggle and when you look at them, you're like, I don't know what that company stands for. Honestly, if you really dig deep, they probably have a brand problem. 100%, yeah. Yeah, but you can sort of see it, can't you? You feel it as well. It almost feels that like there's nothing below the surface in the kind of the nicest way possible. There's sort of almost, do you know what I mean? There's kind of like, there's a level, but it doesn't move you anyway. There's nothing that you can relate to or attach to or connect to. It doesn't feel like there's anything there. That, that's kind of the experience I get with brands that feel that way. Yeah. And I mean, and in B2B, again, like it's a fascinating, that's a whole topic for another podcast, but because it's easier in B2C, like you can... You know, Adidas can choose a brand strategy and then that's a personality and then you're attaching yourself to that versus a whatever Nike or whatever other brand you like. But it's a little bit harder when you're in B2B because there's more to it than that. That sort of whole of like, yes, brand actually does build trust and there is an emotional side. It's still human beings picking the brand. It's not robots. It's not computers. It's someone at the other end. So that's actually been, yeah, more important to define that. So have you got any um, sort of favorite examples or brands you've seen recently or clients you've worked with that have really sort of excelled with their brand experience and their moments of impact that you'd like to highlight? Hey, yeah, yeah. That's a really good question. So there's a brand, it's not a client, but I, I really think they're extraordinary. There's a brand called Grove, which is a small... Uh, sort of eco-friendly cleaning products. I know it doesn't sound sexy, but I discovered it during the pandemic, I think maybe, or before I can remember. And they basically, I think, are doing everything that we have discussed here. So their products are exceptional. Everything's environmentally friendly. It's beautiful. So it's beautifully designed. There's a whole sort of range. They started out with a subscription model that they realized didn't work. So then they, you know, they, they iterated and learned. They ship everything to you in a normal box. And then I don't know who does this, but every box with a Sharpie has a handwritten note that says, enjoy it, Ariadna, or thank you so much with like a little heart or whatever. I mean, it, it changes every time. So it's 
all I'm thinking is like, who has the time to grab a Sharpie for every single box that these people are sending out? You know, there's a little story inside. I mean, it's everything throughout. And I happily pay, you know, what is clearly a premium for, you know, window cleaner. I swear to God, just because of the experience, just because of how it makes me feel. And just kind of like knowing that I'm doing good. I'm cleaning my house. And there's clearly someone at the other end thinking about me and what the relationship with cleaning should feel like. So they've reframed how you should feel about something that's a chore and clearly turned it into something beautiful and positive. So that's sort of clearly that tension that I was talking about before, like cleaning sucks. You know, it's, I mean, I know there are people that love it, but like for most people, it's not that fun. And I can see these people in a room going like, well, how do we make this an experience that people actually want to do? And go like, you know, why you can't do that? And then you come up with a wall that's changed the experience. So I use that because I, it's such an absurd expectation from cleaning products. Yet here they are, they've done it, you know, in very simple, but clearly intentional ways. Yeah, that sounds awesome. It was reminding me of a, a brand that I've recently picked up similar time in the pandemic, which was Dr. Squatch. And it's kind of, they do cold press kind of uh, soaps. I've always enjoyed the shower. Obviously, like everyone does, but kind of not to the degree of kind of really enjoying it. Most of the time, just grabbing shower gel that didn't really matter and stuff like that. But because they're sustainable, it's all natural ingredients. The whole experience of it, when you're using it and you're washing with it, it just it's elevated it for me. I've never never even considered anything like that before. So I tell everyone about it. It's really kind of got to me. It's a great brand. They, they smell great. You know, it's all natural ingredients. It's yeah, it's an awesome experience. Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on something key. One of the three things we say are indicators or that drive brand value, as in financial value, literally, of the brand. And one of them is social capital or word of mouth. So if you've created advocacy and now Chris has become a megaphone for this brand, there is financial value in that. Not to mention that a brand recommended by a friend has a, you know two times the chance of making it into a, a purchase and a brand that you see on TV. So yeah, good. That's awesome. It's a great example. Yeah, the more moments of impact you can get, but the right ones that actually create that experience are going to then have that knock-on effect on your audience's word of mouth and increasing the value of the brand. Yeah, exactly. It's all connected. You know, there's a logic to why do it. Cool. I was going to ask you, like in terms of where people can find out a little bit more about yourself, about what you do and the company. Yeah, bsapartners.com is our website. And then, of course, we're on all the social channels. So ping us, write us, tweet us, whatever you like. We're here. Cool. And I'll put all the details in the description below. But it's been really good having you on. And it'd be great to have you back for a follow-up later on in the year. It'd be awesome. Yeah, let's see where AI is at the end of the year. We'll be like, gosh, we were wrong. It's taken over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that. Let's do that. Cool. Okay, sounds good. All right, Chris. Thank you. Thank you.